The question that people have asked me for 32 years is, how does it feel to represent somebody that you begin to believe may be guilty and dangerous? Famed defense attorney Alan Dershowitz, today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. Well, one of his biggest claims to fame may be that he was on O.J. Simpson's dream team. Alan Dershowitz, a retired Harvard Law professor, uh, has actually also represented Mike Tyson, Michael Milken, and of course, right now, he is a member of Donald Trump's dream team at the impeachment trial. But back in 1994, over 25 years ago, I interviewed Alan Dershowitz about an unusual book he'd written, because usually he writes nonfiction books, excellent nonfiction books. This time, though, he'd written a novel, fiction, a made-up story, and it was a book called The Advocate's Devil, because Alan Dershowitz felt he wanted to tell something that he couldn't say legally and ethically about his clients. He wanted to tell what it's really like. Well, I'm going to let him tell it. 1994, Alan Dershowitz talking about his fictional book, The Advocate's Devil. The question that people have asked me for 32 years is, how does it feel to represent somebody that you begin to believe may be guilty and dangerous? And I could never answer that question fully in the nonfiction format, because I obviously can't reveal which of my past clients I've suspected of being guilty. So I had to write a novel, and the novel allows me to explore not only what a lawyer does, but how a lawyer feels, what effect it has on the lawyer's soul. And it allows me to explore a wide range of ethical issues that are hard to explore in nonfiction. For example, one of the issues I raise is what would happen in this case if our young woman lawyer is told by a client that he committed a murder for which an innocent people, a person, is now on death row and about to be executed. Do you turn in your client who is guilty to save an innocent person? Do you stick with your uh, oath? Uh, eventually the novel becomes a thriller because ethical problems don't in real life often resolve themselves and life resolves itself in dramatic ways. Well, it did occur to me that not only can't you say in nonfiction the answer that people want to that question of what do you do, but you can't really give it an answer in 10 seconds like people want riding up the elevator. You really have to give us a book-length exploration of the nuances, the shadings, the, the, the shifts in emotion and, and, in, and in law. Mm -hmm. You put your finger exactly on it. Literally yesterday, in an elevator... Somebody said, oh, Mr. Dershowitz, how do you represent somebody you feel to be guilty? And now at least I can say, read my novel. <laughs> it's a good right. Christmas gift. It's a good Hanukkah <laughs> gift. You can find out. But you're right about the nuances. For example, clients never tell you they're guilty. Uh, they give you information which they think is going to help you defend them. Then you kind of figure it out for yourself. And in the beginning, you blind yourself to the possibility your client may be guilty. I call it defense lawyer's blind spot. Then eventually reality sets, and you still deny it. But then when the person goes out and does it again, and you realize maybe you have in some way helped that occur because you publicly declared his innocence and you helped the client get off, and then you see the consequences coming back to haunt you, that is the hardest dilemma a lawyer faces. And I know that every criminal lawyer who's had a lot of experience at one time or another has faced that experience. Some of the most dangerous criminals in the world are those with sensitive 
hands and beautiful eyes. You know, the artists do a tremendous disservice when they tell us you can look into a person's soul through their eyes or see the sensitivity in their hands. That's just phrenology. That's nonsense. There is no relationship between the way a person looks and the way a person acts. Uh, Witness Bundy, the great serial killer, could never have been a successful serial killer unless he was charming and handsome and persuasive. I, I couldn't help wondering if you were making a statement, making a point, the fact that Joe Campbell, the accused athlete in this particular story, is white. I mean, would the dynamics of the story have been entirely different if he were black? Very different, because we live in a world of stereotypes. And the white, charming athlete with the second-highest SATs in the National Basketball Association is precisely the kind of man who everybody would believe was innocent. We would start out with a strong presumption of innocence. Tragically, in this country, had I made the villain black it would have been much easier for the reader to immediately assume guilt. And I didn't want to play into that racist stereotype. That must be... To, to think that that would still be the case in 1994, almost 95, is... Mm-hmm. That's a sad commentary about this country. Oh, it is. I think it is. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's interesting because I, I wrote another book called The Abuse Excuse in which I rail against mm-hmm. defenses like black rage defense, uh, the defense being used by William Kunstler in, def- in defending Colin Ferguson, who shot the white people on the train in New York, because it stigmatizes and stereotypes African-Americans. Uh, African-Americans are no more dangerous than, than other Americans, and yet by arguing that they somehow have a rage, we encourage this racism. Another reason that I wanted to make the villain in this case, the protagonist in this case, so white, I didn't want anybody to think I was writing about Mike Tyson or or O.J. Simpson. Um, This is about a range of people. If I were writing about an athlete, I would have made him fictionally into an investment banker. I'm not suggesting that I was writing about an investment banker. But I'm writing about a generic client and the problem that occurs when a lawyer begins to believe the client may be guilty and dangerous. But certainly, as you were alluding to a moment ago, there are slivers of many of your clients in Joe Campbell. Oh, uh, no question. And also, you, I notice I mention other of my real clients and other clients uh, sprinkle them throughout the book. You know, I think it's also a useful book for anybody who's interested in becoming a criminal lawyer to read because it shows uh, how difficult it is to face these emotional issues and the tough choices. Emma, the young girl, I'm not going to give away the story, but in the beginning she wants to be a lawyer like her daddy in the end, she's going to be a psychologist. She's given up on on law. You know, when you, when you think about how I explain in the book how the initial interview occurs between a lawyer and a client, that is a real deep, dark secret that I think the readers will be surprised to read about. We don't go in and ask our clients to tell us the truth. We construct the interview so as to make sure the client, in effect, gives us what we want to hear. We don't want to hear anything that would make our job more difficult. And I think there are a lot of things in this book which will give a lot of readers a clue to how criminal lawyers actually operate. There is a jury uh, expert who helps manipulate the jury. Um, We have to decide whether to put the possibly guilty client on the witness stand. Uh, It is in some respects a primer to how criminal lawyers really operate behind the scenes, but in the context of an ethical thriller. Were you not the author several years ago of, I hope it was tongue-in-cheek, the the rules of of, of how justice gets done, (laughs) and one of the rules was that all 
police officers will lie on the stand to get the to convict a guilty defendant if the defendant is guilty and and prosecutors know that and judges, judges know, know that. that and uh, the last of my rules was nobody wants justice uh, you know I've gone to law offices around the country prosecutors and defense offices and I see those rules hung up <laughs> framed sometimes uh, you know they are tongue-in-cheek but like many tongue-in-cheek rules they reflect a bit of reality and and the advocates devil too although it's fiction in my view, it's a truer account of the criminal justice system than any of the nonfiction books that I've written because take Reversal of Fortune about the Von Bulow case. I had to get permission from my client to write it. There were certain things obviously I couldn't go into in detail. Here, the imagination was my limit. So there were also legal distinctions between when a lawyer can disclose a confidence and moral distinctions about when a lawyer perhaps should disclose a confidence. Uh, in the end, a lot of the ethical issues are raised, and but life resolves them. Uh, they don't get resolved intellectually. They get resolved dramatically. And one of the things that uh, Saul Bellow uh, criticized the initial draft for is he said, you know, you spend so much time, interestingly, going through the ethical issues, and in the end, the ethical issue doesn't solve the case. And I said, Saul, but that's what happens in real life. I spend my time obsessing over ethical issues, and then in the end, a jury makes a decision, or somebody goes out and does it. And it's not a neat package. And this book reflects the reality of how ethics relate with real life and drama. Again, I'm tempted to put on the cynic's hat and say, will a jury, as, as fair-minded as a jury will try to be, will they ultimately judge somebody like Joe Campbell based on his worth to the Knicks as opposed to whether or not he is guilty or innocent of this crime? Well, you know, the jury expert in this case gives what seems like counterintuitive advice. He says everybody loves Joe Campbell. He's popular. His, his numbers are very high in the polls we've done in the rating. And the young lawyer says, ah, that means we should put him on the witness stand. And, and Pullman, the jury expert, says, no, 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 that means you shouldn't put him on the witness stand. That means he is liked at a distance. That means he is conveying a very interesting impression from far away, but if you were to put him on the witness stand, that aura, that mystique might get broken down by him trying to explain and weasel out and justify his conduct. So there's a lot of counterintuitive matters in the book. And of course, in the end, Joe Campbell outsmarts his lawyer. And his lawyer says, you can't take the witness stand, and I'm not going to tell you what he does. But he ends up having his cake and eating it, too, in effect taking the witness stand without really taking the witness stand. And there's a dramatic point at which he conveys something to the jury, which helps the jury resolve the issue falsely, truly, uh, leave it to the reader to decide. But there's a lot of dramatic twists. Did the elements of the story fall into place the way you'd hoped they would? Yeah. Yeah, very much so. Um, I had the story in my mind for a long time. Remember, my job as a law school professor is to come up with creative hypotheticals all the time to teach my students. In fact, the nicest letter I got was from a student recently who said to me that he reading the book was like being back in my law school class, and he almost wanted to write an answer, thinking of this as an exam. <laughs> Then I got a lovely call also from uh, Justice Stephen Breyer in the Supreme Court who, who read the book, and he also told me it was very realistic, and it taught him a lot. So I'm getting uh, – it's the nicest thing about writing a novel is I'm getting a lot of people calling me with a surprise in their voice. You know, it's pretty good. <laughs> As if to say, we never thought you'd be able to pull off a novel, but you did a pretty yeah, good kinda, job. Yeah, it's kind of a backhanded compliment yeah, in a way. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, you know, they're right. Uh, you know, I'm not an artist, and it was uh, – took a lot of chutzpah to sit down and write a novel, but what the heck, that's my middle name. 
Dream Team attorney Alan Dershowitz today on Now I've Heard Everything. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, you've seen him on television, you've seen him on Bravo, you've seen him on Project Runway, fashion guru Tim Gunn, whom I talked with in 2007, and we'll find out if real men can wear pink. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. Thompson.